This is Faith and Fable, a pastoral podcast where we discuss common and often controversial topics from a biblical perspective. I'm Lena. I'm Mark. I'm Matt. And I'm Matt. I want to talk church discipline. Do you want to, you want to talk church discipline? I, I want to talk about church discipline. I, can, I will agree to talk church discipline. All right, let's talk about church discipline. All right. It's my favorite subject. All right, church discipline. There are several passages that we could um, talk about when we're talking on this topic. Um, I have seven. Uh, the clearest passage, at least in terms of the church discipline process, comes from Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20, in which we have a how many stage process. Oh, that's weak. I think it's a four stage process, Matt. <laughs> Is that what your notes say? Yes. All right. All right. Well, let's just walk through the four stages. So this comes from Matthew 15 or 18, verses 15 through 20. And it is a process. It's not not something that just happens all of a sudden. When people think about church discipline, they almost always think immediately about excommunication, you know, just getting the person out. But a lot of people don't think about the fact that this is a process and that, in fact, church discipline is something that's happening all the time, especially at this first stage. And so just to walk through the stages a little bit, um, the first stage says in verse 15, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. And if he listens to you, you've won your brother. So that's actually the first stage of, of discipline. If someone has sinned, um, and it's either a pattern of sin that you're aware of, or it's a sin that's happened against you, you're then to go show him his fault in private. And so if he listens to you, which is just a, a way of saying, if he repents, if he owns that, if he confesses it, at that point, you've won your brother. Um, have you had discussions with people about that this must be a sin committed against you? Yeah, that's what it is. In in the King James, it says, moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee. And so that's the big point. Is yeah. It's got to be done to you, um, but it's it's not a, a sound translation there. Right. And, and he's talking about a much broader issue about purity within the church, not just a personal offense that's done to you. So... Yeah, so so it's a just a broad sin and typically a pattern of sin. Now, this isn't if someone commits a sin against you, like let's say they got angry or you know, something happened and it and it's just a one-off deal. I mean, you can go and you can go and address it if you want, but generally speaking, we're going to go to that passage where it says, you know, love call, covers a multitude of sin. Yeah, I So would the, you say this is more pattern type sin? That's what I try to that's what I try to tell people when they come to me first because they don't know what to do. Um, my, my question is very simple. Is this something that you think is a consistent pattern with the guy? And if they say, yeah, I ask them, give me some examples just to make certain they're not just making that up. And if they're able to show it, then I'll say, yeah, I, th I think that it is something that you should be rightly concerned about, and I think you should go talk to them. And usually they don't know how, or they're scared, so then we talk about how to do it. But there's other times where um, they they don't think it was a pattern, and so my question to them is, is this something that you can just overlook? Mm -hmm. Literally overlook, not keep tucked in your back pocket to be used at a later date, but literally overlook for the sake of just love and grace. And the reality is that we all sin and we sin a lot more than we realize. And, um, and so grace needs to be present there, but, uh, there comes a point where you look at a brother and you're like, this, this is troubling. This is something that's captured the person or becoming a pattern. So like yeah. I said, and then of course, unless it's one of the big sins, like you mentioned, like not, not to rank sin, but you know, if someone's caught in adultery, um, well, that's a one-off. Let's say you. I mean, certainly that you're going to go and address if if it's theft. Yeah, or, uh, illegality or injurious to the to another person or to an entity. Uh, you know, embezzlement. Um, you know, yeah, the uh, things like slander and gossip um, are usually ones that I think 
ought to be addressed. Again, every every situation is going to be a case by case. I find that the people who are good at uh, doing this first stage are those who have already had opportunities to be confronted by others. And so they know it hurts and it's embarrassing and there's a shame attached. And, and so they know that side. They also know the joy of having been talked to somebody by somebody who's actually done it gently and with love. And they know how nice it was to be able to repent with that person and be reconciled. So those are the ones that um, are usually the best at it. Um, but you always have the people who have never, ever confronted another brother or sister in their life. And for them, they can be somewhat inept. Um, but that's just because they've never done it before. Uh, but uh, nonetheless, they still need to. I mean, yeah. it's a command. So this is something the whole church is called to do. Yeah. And so we'll say often, you know, church discipline's going on all the time. I mean, even in your own home, if, <laughs> you know, if your wife confronts you or you confront your, you know, your children, if they're believing children or something like that. And so um, church discipline happens often and it's a good thing. And notice the language of one, you've won your brother. That's very positive. Um, but then the second stage is if he doesn't listen to you. So if he doesn't listen to you, it says in verse 16, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. And in depending on your Bible translation, the phrase is the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed is in all capitals. And that's because he's drawing on the Old Testament. It's actually legal language. And so the two or three witnesses are, are legal witnesses. Um, and so the purpose of this is to, maybe, maybe someone has sinned against you or you've just heard about someone's sin and you go and you confront them maybe they don't, and they don't listen, maybe they don't agree that your accusation is legit. Um, and so these witnesses now can come in. They don't have to be witnesses to the sin or the allegation. They just need to be witnesses in the room to the conversation. So that way they can be sort of an objective uh, voice in this and they can determine if, if, if you confronting this person, um, you're in fact correct that they were in sin, or maybe they hear the other person's response and they're like, I don't, this wasn't sin. We don't think it's sin. Um, so there's protection in that even. That's an interesting point about the, yeah, wit, the, how you view witness. Yeah. I've always and, and people heard that missed up. Don't think of it as protection, but really is protection. Yeah. They always feel like it's gaining. On all up. sides. But yeah, yeah, no, those witnesses need to be carefully chosen. Um, and they, sh yeah, that's an excellent point. Not just your buddies or, hey, you know this person, so let's go. Yeah. Uh, in fact, we, in, in the past, we've uh, encouraged them, if you need a witness, an elder can come. Mm -hmm. um, just so that there's some sobriety and, and age and experience and wisdom, you know, there. What, what, when you got one or two elders looking at the person and saying, this is sin, yeah. or looking at you and saying, I'm sorry, <laughs> You know, I, I appreciate that you're hurt. I appreciate that you're offended, but no sin has occurred. You 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 just had your feelings hurt. Um, it, it it has a way of just eliminating a lot of the unnecessary problems. It's also something I think elders' wives find themselves having to do as well, and it's an unpleasant task at times. But it's it's such an important one because yeah. you have to have that protection. Yeah, absolutely. So th this is this is legal language um, at the second at the second stage here. Now, let's say these witnesses confirm that this is indeed sin, but the person to whom these allegations are, are going against says, nope, I don't, I don't agree, or I'm not repenting or, or whatever. Then you take it now to the third stage. And so verse 17 says, if, if he refuses to listen to them, meaning all, all the witnesses, tell it to the church. So now it goes public. Um, this is a person standing up and letting the church know that there's sin happening. Now, in your experience, how much sin is necessary to get into? Or is it a case-by-case -case issue? I mean, you're making this known to the church. So yeah. it, it, it yeah. and I understand it takes wisdom, but do you, do you make it broad or do you give the details? I, in, in the past, with maybe a few exceptions, I've tried to keep it broad. Um, people just don't need to know all the details. Mm -hmm. If it's a sin that's sexual in nature, it's a sexual sin. Um, if it's, you know, at the same time, I mean, where a man or woman has decided 
to go into an adulterous relationship. Um, I'll say that. They don't need to know who. Um, usually, people already know those things anyhow. Um, same thing with theft or some of the other types of situations. However, we did have uh, one of a molestation. And without getting into specifics of the victims, um, I, I got rather specific about it because it was a severe issue and there was potential other victims. And I, I needed the church to understand that we were dealing with this. Um, I had already taken the guy down to the police department, but um, you know they need to understand that we were addressing this and addressing it very aggressively. And so details came out there. Yeah. Um, there's another side to this also that should be noted. At this point, there's no more discussion as to whether it's right or wrong. Um, or legitimate. Because um, it's been confirmed. It's been confirmed, yeah. 16. When you're telling to the church, and this is something sometimes churches don't get, is that once it comes to that stage, it's been determined. There's no it, no doubt about it, this is sin. And and now the church is responsible to go and try to win this brother or sister. Um, they're not there to debate it. Um, and, and that will really break down the process when at the church level, people start to take sides and say, well, you know, I talked to him, and I just don't think that's an issue. Um, you know, it it needs to be understood by the church, and therefore it needs to be taken very seriously. That you know, once we get to this level, it's been determined it's a sin, and uh, the whole church needs to rise up. Yeah, and the the language of verse seventeen, um, tell it to the church, and then he goes on if he refuses to listen even to the church, and he gets into the fourth stage. But that the idea of listen, so this is more than just we're letting you know so you can kind of pray and, and just be aware of the issue. It's it's actually you're calling this sinning brother or sister to repentance. And it's a, a serious, sober task. And this is why we talk about it in our membership class. Um, because this is what you're covenanting to. You're you're covenanting to the reality that I will come alongside a brother or sister in Christ and call them to repentance when I see them in sin, and that you won't pet it uh, or make excuses for it or just stand on the sideline as you just watch things implode, if you will. And, and this this is one of the things that blows me away because there's many churches who will only do church discipline on maybe once every quarter, once a year. I, I know of a specific church, I believe it's only once a year that they actually will bring the church discipline to the whole church. And it's like, how 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 is that even possible that you keep something? It's not baptism, you know, where you can say, okay, we're, we're going to baptize a few months from now. I mean, this is the health of the church and the purity of the church. And, um, you know, the understanding is that you're telling it to the church, like you said, because the church is going to then go and seek this person out. Um, now, in a big church, not everyone can because not everyone knows the person, but the presumption is that you would know who they are and you would seek them out. So your point is yeah. well made. Um, so, yeah, that's the third stage. And then, of course, the fourth stage is, if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. And so in the context of Matthew, which is a very Jewish book, Gentiles and tax collectors would have been people considered as on the outs. Um, they're not of us. They're not part of us. Um, indeed, people against us. And so um, that at that point, you're now viewing this person as an unbeliever and is a person now who once again just needs the gospel. Um, it needs to be called to repent um, and turn to, turn back to Christ, and so that's essentially the process um, right there. And did you did you know I had an interesting encounter with a that very situation? Just actually, not that long ago, we had a no, person that came to an a situate a, a, a thing at the ch that was being hosted at the church. It wasn't a church event, and he came. And he walked, and he had he was under active church discipline. He walked up to me with a big smile, and he said, "Hello, brother." And he grabbed my hand, and I just looked at him, and I had church members around me. So it's like, wow, I'm going to have to say something here that I I couldn't say what I wanted to say. I would have said that more privately, but I had to do something for the sake of the people listening to me and. I had to come up with it at that moment. So I just looked at it and said, you're not my brother. And then we had a very uncomfortable conversation where I had to reiterate over and over again, the Bible does not view you as a Christian. 
and we are not brothers, and I can't greet you as one. And he finally, I think, he, he kept smiling and trying to make it, well, we have a difference of opinion. I said, it's not a difference of opinion. We, we're not, the Bible's clear, we're not brothers. And mm-hmm. um, people were kind of looking around wide-eyed after that little encounter, but it's like, that's what every Christian should be doing when yep. they encounter a person under the fourth stage discipline, instead of chatting with them, thinking they're friends, ask them how they're doing, you're looking at a person who is in active rebellion against their Lord, and they are to be treated not as a fellow brother who's just had some problems, but it's that practically an enemy of the of the gospel. Yeah. I mean, a tax collector was not a loved person. No. They viewed them as very much opposed and, and hated. Um, but you, to your point, especially at the church level, because we live in a consumer culture where there's a church on every corner. And so they can just go find a new church where they'll, where they'll find open arms and love. And so when a discipline happens at our church, uh, we reach out to other churches. And when we hear that they're attending another church and say, Hey, just so you know, here's, here's what's going on. They're under church discipline, give them the details. And it's amazing how many churches just refuse to honor that. Let's put it this way. We haven't had one yet <laughs> on us. Yeah. Not once. And, and I mean, I've had meals with elders of, from other churches and laid out all of the facts and it didn't change. And they're not helping the person. No. Because it's all in grace, all in kindness and love. You know, we'll, we'll accept them. We'll hear their story and we'll be kind. But it's the goal of church discipline as we'll talk about is, is repentance and restoration. And so when you invite that and welcome them in, you're not helping them. Yeah. We, we've in the past even have pursued a person who left the church mid process, which is pretty common. Anyhow, very, I, I don't think there's been, but one or two times where we brought their name before the whole church. Cause they're told we actually at, at our church, we send a certified letter appealing to the person one more time and letting them know on this date, if you don't, uh, we, we have to bring it before the church. And they're, they just almost never are there. Mm. Um, and they're already at another church. And at that point, we'll, we'll still continue the process because there's no place in here that says, unless they leave your local congregation, then everything's good. But we'll, we'll talk to the churches and let them know, look, this is a situation that hasn't been resolved. This is where, what's been going on. And again, we're summarily ignored or patted on the head and said, oh, we'll, we'll handle it, but nothing ever happens. Yeah, and it should be treated with sobriety, especially because of verses um, 18 and 19 and 20. Um, he, so he, he lists the process 15 through 17, but then he goes on to say this in 18 truly. So he's affirming what just said, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. And it's really interesting in the original because these, these verbs are in the perfect tense, um, which carries the idea of being in the state of something. And so he says, truly, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. It literally, it's in the state of having been bound in heaven. Um, and so in other words, what you're doing on earth is just a picture of what's already taken place in the heavenly courtroom, that God himself has literally bound this person. And so you doing this in public on earth, you, all you're doing is carrying out what's already happened at a greater spiritual heavenly rea- reality. And so when I look at a person now, if I'm in town or something, I see a person who's, who's been disciplined. I'm literally looking at a person who right now, God has cuffed, so to speak, in the courtroom of heaven, which is a very frightening reality. Um, and, and that was done before. Before you did it. We, the church did it. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I mean, that's, that's astounding. It, yeah. Um, and then he goes on to say, though, on the other hand, whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in the state of having already been loosed in heaven. And this is when a person repents and, and comes out of church discipline and is restored. It, now it's an earthly depiction of what's taken place in that courtroom. A person's been loosed. They've been freed. And of course, it's a, it's a wonderful picture. Um, but then he says in verse 19, again, I say to you that if two or three, or if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my father who is in heaven. Well, asking what? 
asking about, I mean, pleading or praying and petitioning the father um, in light of all that's going on. Um, and then he says, again, I say to you that if two or three of you agree or wherever two or three have gathered in my name, I am there in their midst. And people, of course, always use that for prayer, devotional, or that Jesus is with them in a special well, way. Well, this is what makes, this is the minimum needed for a church. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> I'm just saying, that's what I've been told. And it's hard to disagree with that. I mean, two or three are gathered in my name. I'm there, present. See, when I'm alone, Jesus is without me. Apparently. Or I'm not with him. Yeah, because, you know, he's not omnipresent. Right. But um, it's, I mean, it's slam dunk for me. It's pretty clear. <laughs> no, this is people use this all the time so they don't have to be part of a church. You know, right. we, we're two of us in the coffee shop. Right. But really, it's in the context here is church discipline. The two or three there are in reference to verse 16, picking up on the Old Testament of witnesses, mm. um, where two or three are gathered in my name. There I am in, in their midst, which goes back to your point of this is a settled reality. We're not, you're not discussing this at stage three anymore. It's, this has been confirmed by witnesses. And according to verse 20, Jesus is right there in their midst, agreeing with them. And that, that's the one that I've done enough of these over the years now that one of the most common things that happen is that people will look at you so angry when you're at the level of bringing in witnesses. How dare you let my sin be discussed? You know, how dare you? That's gossip. That's this and that. And and so you're looking at this, but then invariably they'll say something like, this is not Christ-like, or this is not what Christ would do. And I'm like, I hate to break it to you, but but not only is it Christ-like, but it's commanded by Christ, and he's with us right now in agreement. And I'll tell them the passage, and they're never yeah. impressed. They're always still very angry, but... Yeah, it's it's a very affirming thing because nobody doing this likes it. Yeah, I, if you like it, you probably shouldn't be doing it. Um, but it's affirming that you know that you're not there violating some law of love or some some of the many things, or we're not being gospel focused or grace centered or whatever is the popular phrase. That Christ, the essence of grace, is with us, saying, "Do it." Yeah, and you know, of course, the question always comes: Well, could they be wrong? You know, could they be wrong on this discipline? Well, they could be, but that's also the beauty of the four-stage process um, is there's all kinds of hopefully wise people coming in on this process, weighing, um, listening, discerning uh, to determine if, if truly this is sin and that this person needs to be called to repentance. So, so if you have good people, wise people, godly people walking through this process, you know, Lord willing, they're not wrong. Lord willing, this has to be done because these people need to be called to Repentance. And and I'd say two things. One's an illustration and one's a comment to that is even if you found a situation where it was wrong, it's an exception. And an exception won't make the rule, nor does it cause the rule to be now thrown out. I mean, it, it's no different than if somebody was convicted and of a crime and they never convict, uh, you know, they never committed and later on found out, look, you know, based on the evidence, you have to do what's right. But invariably, leadership gets involved. I mean, nobody's going to be able to be church disciplined from Missio unless it goes through the elders simply because we're not going to let you have the pulpit, right? I mean, there's never going to be a time where you can come up and just tell the church, hey, I need to let you all know. Um, the moment somebody did that, I would shut them down so fast, and I know you would too. And if we weren't there, John would just tackle them. And you Facebook know? doesn't count. No, no, <laughs> as much as people would like it to. Um, so we actually had a situation, interestingly enough, that this became an issue where a guy uh, was convinced that he, at least in his own mind, that he heard somebody admit to a very serious sin and that people were making light of it and joking about it. And so he was repeating this because he thought it was okay. And it came back to the person that he was talking about, and there was a great offense, and rightly so taken. And so I got involved in this whole mess, and I, I realized I got to go back to the original parties, try to unravel what's going on. I got them together, and what happened, and this guy said, well, this is what I heard, and this is who said it, and the guy's sitting there right next to me, and I said, 
do you agree? He's like, I never said that. And everyone that was in, involved in that also agreed that he never said it. But this guy was not going to back down. He's like, you're a liar. And I know what I heard. And so once we finished that part, I, I, I walked him through this whole process. And I said, we can't act on it. There is no evidence. I said, your word is not enough. And he was greatly offended by it. But I'm like, at, the, at this point, I'm your witness. And I've examined all the evidence, and there's there's no evidence. There's nothing that other than your own word that this thing occurred. And so I said, the only thing that you can do at this point is leave it alone, drop it. And and and, I'm, and I told him, I mean, seriously, drop it. Don't bring it up again. Don't hold anything against the people. And if you are correct, the Lord will bring it to light in His time. And if you're incorrect, it'll all work itself out, but drop it. And he couldn't do it. And that's, that's part of that protection. Having that witness yeah. or two to examine at the evidence is such an important part of it. Um, and that's where it can go wrong. Cause you, you can stuff the jury box. So to, right. You know, and yeah. that's where you have to get true witnesses and the witnesses need to understand what a serious task it is. Um, I always, Tell people, find people who are mature and also people who are not wimps. You know, you don't need either one in the room. Yeah. So. So in light of that, you've got some just practical reasons for why, why this process is good, why a church should practice church discipline. Can you give yeah. us some of those? Yeah, six of them specifically. Um, first of all is it, it shows us how passionate Christ is for the holiness in his church. And it, it really reveals how far the church in America has fallen in this area, that, that we're overlooking everything. You know, uh, there's some seriously big name pastors who have fallen and every one of them is starting a, a new church <laughs> with a new start. In fact, one guy's, um, I think his new church's name is like New Beginnings church. And I'm like, oh, come on, your entire church is built around your fall. Uh, dude, just step away and be quiet. Um, but, um, you know, Christ wants a holy church. Christ wants us to be built up into his image. And um, in other and, words, this is his idea. Yeah. yeah. And, and and I mean, the church hasn't even come into being yet. And yet he's already referenced. This is the first reference of the church here in Matthew 18. And the first, the very first reference of the church is how to keep it pure. Mm -hmm. And then early into the book of Acts, you got Ananias and Sapphira, chapter five. And it's in, in American terms, it's a piddly sin. They said, we're going to give all of our money for the sale of the land. That's what they publicly said, but they kept some back. And that story is crazy, scary, and kind of humorous in a dark way you know the the husband first is caught and he falls over dead and and i liked it the young men then took out his body it's apparently that's <laughs> round their job. up yeah. Yeah, yeah it's like <laughs> oh, we're old uh we gotta protect our backs take them out and and then his wife comes walking in now you know how awkward that congregation everyone see my husband yeah where's where's oh, ananias i just well, went to the bathroom i don't know what <laughs> That, that picture because that's exactly ago. it. You know, she was off doing something, and she comes in. Where's Ananias? Someone give the girl a like, heads up. I'm not. I'm. I'm not saying anything. Uh, you know, <laughs> awkward looks, and there's there's the apostles up front, and they're like, they don't even give her an out. They're not like, look, this is what happened to your husband. Come clean. Yeah. Nope. They say, so tell us, what did you do with the money? Oh, we gave it all. Over dead she goes. I'm like, whoa, young guys, come on, take out her body. And then the understatement of the year, and a great fear fell upon the entire church. <laughs> I'm like, dude, yeah, yeah, come on, you know. But I mean, early in the church's oh life, you got two people dead because they lied on their taxes, so to speak. Yeah. You know, right. Um, right? And again, which happens weekly. Yeah, and so. The reality is Christ is very serious about it, and the 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 people of the of the Lord ought to be much more serious about their lives uh, as well. Yeah, it's interesting how 
how in the New Testament, these things happen in the very beginnings of the church to demonstrate God's seriousness with sin. And so you see another one, even in first Corinthians with the Lord's supper. Yeah. Um, and how this is, you know, one of the, the beginnings of the, of the institution of the Lord's supper as it's practiced regularly within the context of, of the local church. And Paul says, um, because you're not taking the Lord's supper in a worthy manner, um, many of you are sick <laughs> and some have fallen asleep. In other words, God has killed them. And that's discipline. And that's discipline for, because the issue he's dealing with there is unity. Um, that's, that's what an unworthy approach to the Lord's Supper means, is it's an issue of disunity, not merely personal sin. It's um, interesting, though, that he had to explain to them what, what they were. They all saw the sickness and the, and the death. Yeah. They just didn't understand what was going on. They had attached it to every other reason. He's like, guys, I hate to tell it to you, but the reason that all of this is going on is because of your... Your yeah. sin and and your unrepentance, but yeah, it's very important. So that's the first one. Christ wants His church holy. It's it's simple and obvious. But the second one um, is also an important one because it it it's that it serves as an example to the others in the church, and that's where the Ananias and Sapphira story comes into play. I mean, a great fear fell upon the entire church, and. You know that was the topic of the potluck afterward. <laughs> um, everyone's talking. What do I mean? Whoa! But I, I have friends from way back when, back when we lived in Los Angeles, and he was uh, he was an elder, and we were at their house for dinner, and I, I I'm like I've never heard how you guys started coming to Grace Community Church, and she said, Oh, it's it's a it's a simple story. She said we were invited. One Sunday, uh, we were relatively young Christians, and we didn't know much, but she said we came to an evening service, and evening services um, were where we would do the Lord's Supper, if I remember correctly. All I remember was the Lord's Supper was when they would read names um, off about third or fourth stage discipline. And she she said we came, and they, they read off these various names and, and what their sin was, and she said, I remember looking at my husband and said, we're staying here. These people are serious about their faith. And I was struck by that. I thought you, one would never think of church growth through church discipline. But for them, um, that became their church home. And ultimately, he became an elder in the church. Um, well, how many, how many times have you done vision and values? And when you get to that part, um, it, it always happens for me, at least, people's kind of perk up and they're like, boy, I'm... I, I'm really impressed and glad that you guys actually do that because it does. It communicates a seriousness about holiness. Until, of course. Well, <laughs> yeah, nobody's ever happy when. <laughs> but yes, no, they are, and it is. It is also a rarity, um, but it's it's such a simple way to make everyone become a little bit more sober minded and and consider. So just being a good example. The third one. The the third one is is. I was about to jump in. Well, the well, third it's, one it promotes is, holiness. It pro <laughs> hey, you're on the tape. I have no. I, there's no. I have no sub bullets, so I'm just saying that. Well, I'm, you move on to the fourth. No, the third one. <laughs> be quiet. So the third one just promotes personal holiness. Um, I mean, it's connected to the other two. Christ wants the church holy. You have an example that you 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 need to understand that your life is not private. Um, and it and you need to watch your over your heart and and as a result of that it's going to promote holiness you you don't want to be that person who, who would um, but then the fourth one is one that people don't always grasp until they see it done rightly and that is that it protects unity rather than um, destroys it because as much as people try to make church discipline something that's divisive, it's it's really not. It really brings one the church together around the core things of that Christ has died for our sin. And so, like Paul says, if we have died with Christ to sin, then how can we allow sin to reign in our our lives? Uh, and it's forbidden, and we must learn to put it to death and battle it. And so, when you let any church that allows sin to be present and no one is dealing with it biblically, invariably disunity will, will come. And that was the church early on when we came here. There were just pockets of 
division. People hated each other, so they literally sat on different parts of the sanctuary. They wouldn't talk to each other. Um, they hated each other, but they still all came on the same Sunday. It was just just a cesspool of disunity, and and only through several church disciplines where we began to address the sin and take it very, very seriously, did they begin to realize that we had a common point of unity. That was the gospel. And then the call in light of the gospel to live a life consistent with that calling. And that's where that unity started to come together. And it's actually a very beautiful thing. Two more that I would I would give would be it protects doctrinal purity. And this is this is a, an area of church discipline people don't always think about, and that is um, when you have people coming in trying to teach false doctrine, um, you are to mark them out. You're actually commanded to mark out those people who do not hold to a, a faithful teaching of the apostles, which is the, the New Testament, mm-hmm. and mark them out and have nothing to do with them. Um, it, it, it's, it's a critical, critical issue. Um, there's just no tolerance for two things really in the in the church: false teaching and disunity. Um, in fact, that guy I was referencing, where he came up and tried to call me brother, he, his sin was one of factiousness, where he was just creating all kinds of disunity, and we had to deal with it because he was involving even non-Christians who were coming to the church, and they were greatly confused because you know, of the things that he was trying to do. Well, same thing with uh, false teaching or bad teaching. There comes a point where you have to confront that and you have to stop it. And there is no um, playing around with that. And then on the the factious um, man point, you know, from Titus 3.10, it says, reject a factious man um, after a first and second warning. So a factious person is not even... You don't even walk through the full Matthew 18 process. No. Um, if it's a person holding to wrong doctrine, um, and they're not trying to teach or purport or create divisions with it, um, that, that, that's maybe a little bit different. But a factious man's a person who's intentionally trying to divide, especially based on bad teaching. <laughs> and so for that reason, you know, Paul's very aggressive in, in Titus, and he just says, after the first and second warning, get him out. Reject him. And and then just in case you, you didn't see how serious he was, he says, knowing that such a man is perverted and is in the process of perpetually sinning and he is self-condemned. It just I mean, he just piles on the charges against the guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it shows you how deadly in Paul's mind a man who is creating that kind of disunity. And this is where sins like slander, um, Gossip, um, lying, uh, rebellion, all of those fall under that broader category of being a factious person. And so when you, you whenever you find, and, and the church abounds with them, they just come in and they just start to snipe at people. Yeah. Um, this is where oftentimes the elders um, suffer the most because an elder is almost always a big target and people can just take cheap pot shots at them. And, um, you know, I'm so thankful for our elders. I, I, I know of more than one occasion where um, one or more of the elders have stood up strongly against people who were just just ripping me uh, apart behind the scenes, and I didn't even know about it. And then they came into you know awareness of it, and the, and they're like, you know, this will stop now. You you don't get those free shots, and you don't get to try to move people away from the leadership of this church. You, they need to be in submission and respect. And, um, and so factiousness, yeah, it's, it's, it's a, it's a common sin. And I think it's probably one of the more common sins that are, is overlooked in the the church today. They just put up with them. They'll just move them to new ministries. Yeah. Um, and well, that's the idea of, you know, the grace-based approach where it's terrible though, where we'll just be slow um, show a lot of grace, but the grace is the discipline. Um, that's the purifying, you know, it's like we talk about with children. It's, I want to be slow to, to discipline. It's like, no, your discipline is the, the grace in that moment. Um, that's, what's going to put them on the right trajectory, so to speak. And someday we're going to have to do a podcast <laughs> on why, sure. what people call grace yeah. is so often not grace because they don't even understand it rightly. But back to the Back to the doctrinal purity, again, 
um, it's going to have to be false doctrine. It's going to be that it's not it's not just differences of opinion. Yeah. So so what is what is that then? What is false doctrine versus maybe differences I'm, I, of opinion? Well, actually, you you have a term I never was taught. Um, I, and I'm trying to remember it. You, you, you'll know at the, the the stages of doctrine. Uh oh, dogmatic rank. Yes, I'd never yeah. heard of that. Yeah, explain that. So, dogmatic rank is is a three tiered or three concentric circles, if you will. And at the very center is, um, orthodoxy, truth, anything upon which the gospel stands or falls. And so, so our notitia. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. You, you got to get that right. And some other things though, like Trinity. Um, which yeah, I guess we wouldn't true. count as Natisha, but um, anything upon which the gospel stands or falls. Um, but included in that, though, would be a doctrine of the Trinity and those kinds of things. So it's a little more broad than just Natisha, I think. But then, but then you have a second tier, um, which is called doctrine. Uh, so this would be differences of understandings on things like salvation or the fancy word soteriology. You know, do you hold a Calvinism or Arminianism? Well, a Calvinist and an Arminian are both believers. I mean, they both can under, they both understand the gospel, um, or eschatology, you know, pre-mill versus ah-mill versus post-mill. Um, those aren't things upon which the gospel stands or falls. What they must agree on is that Christ is going to bodily return, raise the living and the dead and bring them to judgment. Um, but then the third category would be that of opinion. Um, and these are personal convictions. So your thoughts on things like alcohol or, you know, what kind of music a person should or shouldn't be listening to. Um, so when we're talking about false doctrine, this is truly anything upon which harms the gospel, diminishes the gospel, makes it stand or fall. And, and that is the kind of thing that has to be dealt with. As a whole, yeah, that, that's exactly it. Uh, we, we've actually, I had to do a whole sermon series on the Trinity because we had some people starting to come who held to a modalism. Yeah. And it's like, you can't, that, that's not orthodox and no. And that, that their point was, what's the big deal? I'm like heaven or hell. And yep. I end up making that point in my sermon series. So yeah, you're right. And and they ultimately just went back to their home church where they all apparently believe this. But what what would you do if you had a person, we're, we're much more Calvinistic. I hate that term because it mm-hmm. comes with a lot of stuff that we're not, but we're more Calvinistic in our soteriology, right, yeah. at, at Missio. What if you had a guy who was strongly Arminian and was extremely vocal about it? Now you're in the category potentially of, of divisiveness, of creating okay. factions. So, so there's overlap there. So they, they can hold to Calvinism if that's what their true biblical conviction of, of the biblical text is, that's fine. And if they want to talk about it, come you talk with- Arminianism? You said Calvinism, did I don't know. What, you know, whatever. I, I just... Well, yeah. <laughs> I, I just need to know if you're a closet Arminian or what? what did I, yeah, I don't remember what I said. Anyway, what I'm saying, if a person holds to Arminianism, let's say. Oh. Okay, yeah. Um, That'd be different. Yeah. Uh, and, and they truly Changing believe that's, that's what the Bible teaches. Um, fine. You can still be a Christian completely and hold to Arminianism. Um, but now if you're in a church where the bulk of people tend to hold to Calvinism and you're in there and you're trying to push your theology and trying to convert people and you're creating confusions and disruptions and truly struggles in people's minds about now what's true. And, and in all of that, there's these subtle subversions of, boy, I don't know, this is what the pastor teaches. Can I now trust the pastor? You know, and so there's all kinds of things that come into play here. And so I would, um, tell the person they need to stop. They need to stop talking about that, pushing that. And if they want to discuss it, talk to me or you. And then we'll chat. I, I'd agree with that. Um, it, that's why I brought it up because it's, it's subtle. Um, any one of these things can actually become a point mm-hmm. um, where you have to begin to initiate church discipline just because of the fruit that it's producing and why they're doing it. And we've had that over the years. I mean, I remember a guy used to confront me every week because I did not speak against abortion every week. And his view was that if I was, if I was a man of God and a true Christian, every sermon somehow would work Mm -hmm. an anti-abortion rant into it. And I was just like, Mm 
go away. You know, you're, you're not helping. Um, then I had the other guy who felt I was not a true Christian because I did not advocate the planting of bombs in abortion clinics. Um, and so that was a fun church discipline well, I don't situation. Know if you are, I mean, I, well, yeah. And then, but, but then I've, I've got people over the years who have tried to do it over end times doctrine. Sure. Well, that's just it though, is if, if it is, so let's say it's Calvinism, Arminianism, pre-op, post, what, you know, whatever the issue is. I know your counsel in the past has been go find a church that holds to this so you can worship in purity and complete unity. And this isn't an issue for you that you're not constantly tripping over it or feel like you need to correct the pastor for everybody that, you know, the Lord hasn't entrusted you to be over because <laughs> you're not their pastor. Um, so go, go find a church where you can yeah, worship in purity. Yeah. yeah. It, it's, it, anyhow, it's, it's one of the more key reasons why we're to practice church discipline is just that doctrine of purity. And then the final one is one that most people don't think about. And that's out of first uh, Timothy five, where um, it it's a protection to the office of elder because elders are oftentimes just set up in such a situation where they're having to make all kinds of hard, hard decisions and uh, all kinds of accusations can come against them. And it they're a cheap target because they're upfront, they're leading um, by, by reality of leading, they're taking chances, they're being vulnerable. Um, and people will go ahead and say, this is wrong. Uh, this guy is doing this, this is that. And so um, the Bible in First Timothy chapter 5, let's see, it's verse 19. Um, Paul makes it very explicit that if, if you have a sinning uh, elder, you take that seriously, but you never receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. So you, it's not something that... An elder has to constantly be privately confronted. Um, it needs to be something that's clear and conf and confirmed by other people before any kind of an accusation is going to be brought uh, and accepted at by uh, uh, against an elder. At the same time, though, if the elder is found guilty and he hasn't repented, um, he also has a hard reality of being rebuked in front of the entire church. And we actually lost an elder over that yeah. once. And, and let me say about, just quickly about the two or three witnesses there. This is different than the Matthew 18, second stage, two or three witnesses. Yeah, that's um, a good point. Those are, are, are legal witnesses to the conversation, if you will, about the ex accusation. Here, the two or three witnesses must have personally witnessed the sin of this elder. Um, it, it's not just people sitting in a room weighing the conversation. Well, we'll see. It's it's they actually had to be there presently, yeah. see, seeing that sin. And and again, it's it's to protect that office, and you take that very very seriously. Um, uh, but again, if the guy doesn't want to repent, if it is in fact a sin, then he literally is brought before the entire congregation to be rebuked, which is a another example to the flock of how serious sin is going to be taken. Um, by by the entire church, including the leadership. So those are those are simple but very important reasons why a church ought to be practicing. Now, question for you in verse twenty: Those who continue in sin, talking about the elder, rebuke in the presence of all, so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. Is the all and the rest there in reference to the church or in reference to the rest of the board of elders? I take it as the whole church. Me too. <laughs> just wonder I, actually we've never talked about that so i didn't know what your position was but to your point because they are models yeah and I, that's, a very powerful um witness and example of if if sin can get an elder who's who's supposed to be mature in these kinds of things you know how much more than the rest of the church yep yeah and that no one is exempt from those things so yeah i it you know, the office of an elder is, is a hard job, and but it's also a, a holy task. So 
um, the church needs to see that that and how many times I mean right now on the Facebook not on Facebook on the internet uh, there are so many quote unquote survivor groups out there you know sovereign grace survivor group this survivor and they're all talking about the horror stories of their their situations in churches um, you know one of the most common situations that you find with people who have been wounded truly wounded by the church is that the church would not deal with the sin of their pastor or their leadership. And in fact, some of the latest failings where several very big name pastors finally, um, through that Me Too movement, they finally um, were found. Even though people have been saying, this guy raped me, this guy did this, this guy did that. Um, not only were they covered up, they actually had fixers on staff that would cover up the sexual sins of the pastor. And not only that, but then he was promoted and brought into other churches and more money and people all knew and nobody did. That's, that's vile. Um, and again, if, if you just simply listen to the Lord and, and practice what the what the Lord has given to us, the church would be so much better off, and we would not be an object of such vile hatred at in in that sense by the world. The world would hate it for its holiness rather than its lack of holiness. Right. Um, and I, I just would rather be hated for my godliness than my ungodliness, if that makes sense. Yeah. So, so in conclusion, we do this because Christ commanded us to do it out of a love for his church for which he died for her purity and unity. Um, and so he's put this process in place to secure that unity and that, that purity. Um, and so do, I think just a, a closing remark is um, generally speaking, this should be done with slowness um, because the goal is repentance and restoration, you know, apart from, you know, a big major sin of like adultery or something, and you, you know, you should sure. rightly go after it. But generally speaking, it should be done with slowness and with care because you do want the person to be restored and, and to repent of their sin. And so um, that's why we do this. Mm -hmm.